This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Self-referential play. Early to mid-70s science fiction cinema. Game marketing in the social media loser mall. And base 12 math. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's now on Kickstarter, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm. Are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where the gaming table is square, and we're sitting around it, Robin, and we're quipping about the gaming hut. So far, so much like a gaming hut, but in this case, this gaming hut responds to a question from beloved Patreon backer Joshua Hillerup, who asks... How would you go about making a role-playing game that has the kind of relationship with role-playing games that the sitcom community had with sitcoms? Robin? Well, the flip answer is, if you want a self-referential role-playing game, play a role-playing game. Yeah, right. I, I alluded to that in my intro. Yes. By its very nature, there is a fictional level where you imagine what is going on with the characters, and then there's another level where the players are commenting on the action quite often in a knowing, sometimes even 
comical way. Mm-hmm. And if you've got my players, a third level where you're imagining an audience watching it and memeing about it. Right. <laughs> and I think we'll get to that in a little more detail very soon because that's, I think, one of the answers. Mm-hmm. And so to recap for those who are not watchers of the NBC sitcom community. <laughs> NBC slash Yahoo streaming. Slash Yahoo slash Netflix slash whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. The uh, creator of that show, Dan Harmon, particularly through one of his viewpoint characters, Abed, who's a fan of all things entertainment and a, a structural analyst of that entertainment, would often comment on how any given episode of the show was either relating to sitcoms in general or to uh, whatever genre was being parodied in, in its many genre parodies. And this was Harmon's way of sort of indicating this isn't your regular sitcom. This is a gun that knows it's a sitcom and is messing with you a lot of the time and subverting those expectations. So, for example, the culmination of the will-they-won't-they they relationship is eventually just tossed off over the shoulders. Oh, yeah, we've been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't tell anybody. And that's an example of... I guess the purpose of commenting on it. So I think the first thing that you would have to do to successfully make a role-playing game where that was a, a feature, I guess, of both of the fiction and of the process was to have something to say about role-playing games. But Ken, I think for most people, the level of irony is probably easier to do if you are commenting on other forms of narrative as your players do. So go into a bit more detail on the delightful meta-narrative hijinks that your Follow Delta Green players get up to. Yeah, my Follow Delta Green players operate, as I mentioned, on the three levels, the level of game, the level of players of a game, the level of fans of the TV show that the game, I think, generates. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the relationship. I'm not sure if the game is a licensed game about the TV show. That would be even crazier. But I believe that the action on the table is the show that is being watched off in this fictive third plane of existence. And they break it up into seasons. There's discussions about, oh, obviously we're on Netflix now. We have a bigger budget. We've gone to Europe instead of just the same backwater parts of America. You know, discussions of guest stars and and things like that. Lots of discussions about, you know, the fan community and the fanfic about the, the setting. And all of that feeding into a different level of enjoyment of play. So... Only very rarely do we drop that level down into the, even the level of play level. We did that at one time where at the beginning of the game session, beloved player and uh, game designer John Harness said, we open on a proscenium stage. And he said, this was the live theater episode, the experimental live theater episode of the show. And so it was incumbent on myself as GM and all the players to present what this looked like in the theater version of the show. And so every now and again, it'll drop down into that level, but still for the most part, it is felt as a conventional role-playing game with this extra thing attached to it, as opposed to directly driving or altering play itself in the way that community did, because the, you know, the matter of that show is the jokes and the jokes obviously you know, the show was created to make those jokes work, not the other way around, right? It was not that Danny Pudi shows up and then riffs on the episode. Those are all written lines, and it's meant to produce that level of referential awareness in this, you know, conceit, even at the player level. You, you know, right. the Danny and, and everybody else are aware that they're aware that there's a TV show structure to their lives, push against it as they might. Right. But they're not self-aware of themselves as being 
characters being played by actors written by Dan Harmon. Right. Except, of course, uh, every now and again, that's where Abed breaks up into that level almost. Yeah. Right. But he, he, he never realizes, or maybe there's some weird... I've forgotten now. Maybe there's a weird hallucinatory episode where he... I think there is, actually. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it. There's one episode, I think, where he has a break. People who watch Community more recently than I can tell us in the comments exactly what that is. But in general, he's not, oh, I'm a character. He's a person who's aware that his actual life is mirroring those structures and tropes. Yeah. So, I guess what you would need then to have a game that is parallel to that is one in which the characters realize that their lives are increasingly like a role-playing game. And so that it could just be as simple as something that I've also done, uh, which is have the group of players, the reason they all know each other is they're a gaming group. And Mm -hmm. in this instance, they all go off to a LARP in the woods and it turns out to be a fear itself scenario. And so that allows them to comment on the horror tropes that they're experiencing uh, while they're doing it in a matter much like Scream, there's in-jokes and stuff. But again, there's it's not a meta-narrative where they realize their characters, but rather they realize that the things that are happening to them in their actual lives are mirroring the things that they would normally play out at the gaming table. And then, so that would imply a game that is set in a relatively narrow set of settings, namely post-1974 Earth. Start with Earth, Ken. That's what I always say. Yeah, start with Earth and start with the Midwest, apparently, which even I, devoted scion of the Midwest that I am, would not necessarily say. But you could also sort of incorporate into this things like the fantasy game that exists in Castle Falkenstein. Mike Ponsmith put the notion that the uh, Isekai narrator hero who is telling you about the game Castle Falkenstein developed the game Castle Falkenstein to be played in the world of Castle Falkenstein. And I did, in fact, in my Castle Falkenstein adventure, do a sort of a James Bond throwdown at the Baccarat table, but instead it was a throwdown around the role-playing table with a group of elves that had showed up and they wanted to play a role-playing game. And so the joke as we played it was that the elves were like old-school power gaming D&D players and jerks because they were elves. And so that was sort of the the driving tenor of it. And so one could assume or pretend that there would be a campaign of, you know, the fantasy version of Falkenstein in the game Castle Falkenstein that you play again using Castle Falkenstein. This is just going to be in insufferably meta regardless of where we stop. So I'm going to stop right there. The other example that I guess I want to adduce, it's not quite an example in that it doesn't exist, but we certainly heard about it a great deal. You and I going back to the nineties was James Wallace's much brooded game Frop in which you played people in a fantasy world where three great tomes of knowledge had landed and informed their culture, Star Trek style. And so everyone in this fantasy world believed that they had a class and that they had hit points and they had levels and they knew that bugbears did such and such. And I think a part of the joke of Frupp, although it's been a while since I've heard James expatiate on it, was the somewhat disconnect between the actual reality of their fantasy world and the D&D fantasy world that had dropped into their world and reshaped it. But still, a lot of it was going to be the self-knowledge of, oops, uh, you know, better uh, kill this bugbear so I can suddenly get stronger type uh, play. I don't, again, know how productive that is over a great length of time. And even community stayed down on the, the fiction level 
more often than it ascended into the metafiction level, that it was mostly just a, a side bit that Abed would do with the occasional genre homage, I believe, as Abed would insist, rather than parody, uh, when they would, you know, do Star Wars paintball or whatever. Right. And so I guess the next level of this would be last Starfighter style approaches mm-hmm. where you learn to play a game and then it turns out that that has some form of effect in a real world elsewhere so that you are conscious that you are playing characters. So, for example, you could do Tulpa Squad, Mm -hmm. where the cast of characters are a group of, I guess, initially young kids in, let's say, the 80s. This is where this sort of thing, I think, tends to happen these days. And you are all experimental subjects in a top-secret government program to develop your psychic powers. And what they wind up doing is, because they are avid uh, role players, it's the 80s, maybe they're playing Gamma World or something, who knows, that they wind up, instead of manifesting the remote viewing and telekinesis that Matthew Modine is trying to uh, install in them, they instead are able to create astral projections of their characters from their favorite role-playing game or games, right? You could have, mm-hmm. you know, the super spy from Top Secret and the the paladin from D&D and the space guy from uh, Traveler and so forth. And then Either you could have a sort of a prologue where they are using their projections in order to bust them out of the experimental uh, lab. And then, you know, you could do that for a while and then fast forward to the present or to 2000, which is 20 years later and still has sort of, you know, reasonably adventure age people. And mm-hmm. now they're, you know, it's been ages since they've any of them manifested these. And then someone else starts manifesting a role-playing character in the real world and you have to and you find a reason to then go and you know stop them. fast forward to 1992 and suddenly the city's full of vampires yeah exactly and you could continue flashing forward i suppose to have different eras of role-playing and uh you know all of a sudden you know you're in the year 2000 and uh dogs in the vineyard are showing up and so forth right i i, I think that that would sort of tie into a a game that i've wanted to do for a while and in a ideal world, I would find a publisher willing to bankroll it as a commercial product. But my uh, friend and player, Josh Knorr, once said that every game I run is either Declare or Planetary. And the Planetary comic by Warren Ellis and John Cassidy is a comic book about the history of adventure fiction. And so they are literally archaeologists excavating, you know, the uh, aliens and the Tarzans and the Draculas and the Doc Savages and the Hong Kong cops and the DC Dark Age and all of the other elements that go into a modern day comic back in the 20 teens or whenever this was, 2000s, I think. And the notion of a role-playing campaign that does the same thing, that excavates the legacies of old role-playing games. So you would begin, obviously, in a dungeon complex somewhere in Germany that was dug up by NATO when they were building a, you know, facility somehow, and they turned up this dungeon, and somewhere down there, there's a guy with one eye, and he's messing with everyone, and so you have to be the, you know, German cops or the NATO soldiers that go down and check it out, and then that sets you off on a series of adventures in which, like the Planetary 3, you are recapitulating the story of role-playing games through the stories that role-playing games were about. Again, like you say, that would require a a, a larger a larger theme, which I you know, I think there's a couple that you could adduce there, but that's maybe another way to do it. But at no point, I think in that game, would you have the characters turn to each other and say, oh, it must be, you know, we've we've um, uh, met the uh, aliens. I guess it's about time to fight Cthulhu because that would I, I feel like it would be 
theme breaking if you're trying to maintain a sense of of, of wonder and, and horror. But I suppose if you were doing it as sort of a snarky bit comedy, a la community, you could certainly do that same thing. And in this case, it could be almost any sort of serial, maybe a, a cop procedural, a la Mutant City Blues. And the Mutant City Blues guys are, you know, going out and they're investigating. And sure enough, a meteor has hit outside of town. And uh, there's a strange glowing green alien that's showing up and doing things. And oh, we have to deal with him. And then suddenly area billionaire goes nuts and starts breaking criminals arms. And we have to deal with him. And so you, the Mutant City Blues regular cop supers have to deal with the ever unfolding madness that is the history of comics. And in that way, you could engage in that sort of game. Uh, Sentinel Comics, of course, is a good bit about that because it is structurally involves issues and, you know, collections and things like that. And you are encouraged to immerse yourself in a meta superhero continuity as part of play, although it doesn't inform the rules outside of the names of things very much. Right. And one of the things that Joshua specified is how would you do this successfully? Mm -hmm. And I think that the successful comes in in having everyone sit down and agree on what the tone is. Yeah. Because I think the literal community thing where someone is a quipster gets old fast or you're already doing it. Mm -hmm. It's not special enough in this format. And I think you would have to agree to take it seriously in some way that there would be uh, stakes. And yes, you know that this in some way echoes a role-playing game or the history of role-playing games, but either you all agree that that never will enter the character's consciousness or that you will all, you know, take it relatively seriously because Unlike playing a self-aware sitcom for comedy, I think that the comedy of this would probably wear thin pretty quick. But I guess you could do, you know, one or two sessions and, and then get out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a single comic session in a strain of normal is not outside most people's ability to run or interest in playing. I agree that the joke gets old fast if you're doing it as the main form of fun. And again, even community doesn't make it the main form of virtually any episode. There's always a, a an actual human story of some kind going on, or at the very least, hey, kids, Star Wars, which is also fun. Right. Well, speaking of getting out, let's get out of this segment and into another one. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders. But these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It's time to once more wander into the cinema, not just any cinema, but the Cinema Hut. Uh, this time around, it's still a sort of a cool-looking, big, 
single screen movie house because the era of the multiplex has not arrived so we're going in it probably looks kind of uh, brutalist like it did last week because we're still in the 1970s and last week i sort of teased that we would probably get to the big science fiction film that changes everything and looking at the list though of the string of science fiction films in the early to mid 70s we're not going to get there because it turns out there's another big, long list of essentials that we are discovering as we go that the 70s is not only the heyday of the American New Wave, but of uh, science fiction cinema. And in some ways, those overlap. And there's also another couple themes that will begin to emerge. We talked about sort of uh, the malaise, the dystopia that inflected our previous crop of films. And now we're going to start to encounter films that deal with another aspect of the 70s. And one that very much does that is Westworld by Michael Crichton from 1973. This, just for its imagery, Yul Brenner as the killer robot cowboy, I think that alone sort of earns it its essential uh, status. It's actually directed by Crichton based on his uh, novel and is well executed by the standards of the 70s. It is, of course, about an amusement park full of robots where the people can go and do anything they want to the robots and everything's going to be fine. They'll be perfectly safe until something goes wrong at the amusement park. And uh, it uh, is a nice combination, I think, of both fear of technology. Uh, so there's a horror aspect to it. It has uh, Richard Benjamin in the lead. You can tell it's the early 70s because Richard Benjamin is a leading actor. <laughs> yep. It, no time before or since. And his sidekick is James Brolin. <laughs> you would, th those would be reversed at any other era of cinema. Yep. And you also get the sense from this of uh, a critique of 70s hedonism, that the heedless goofs played chiefly by Benjamin and Brolin are just going to have fun at the expense of other people. And uh, they're not examining the whole moral implications of what it is they're enacting and, and the moral implications come in and whack them on the head. So that uh, interestingly, uh, this period of cinema, although it has sort of a countercultural gloss, Ken is, is kind of up your alley. It's, there's a lot of conservative films uh, that we're uh, looking at this week, and Westworld is uh, definitely one of them. Well, when you're reacting to something, you can react in, you know, one of two ways. That's terrible, or more please. And I think many people in the 70s were beginning to notice that was terrible. So, yeah, it's an interesting era. And back in the day, you could critique hedonism uh, as a reactionary statement, but still pretend you were being pro progressive about it. Because hedonism, of course, was tied up with capitalism and all the other good stuff. And, and there was some having some cake and eating it, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of your hedonist corruption, make sure to show lots of midriff. Let's make sure that at, we... At minimum. At, at the very least. Another example of a film commenting on its own time and being science fiction and maybe being a little more iffy than we would make today is another movie that I think against sort of my my good judgment or my better nature, I would say, is a still an essential, and it's Woody Allen's Sleeper from the same year, 1973. It, Woody Allen plays a, a, a Woody Allen schlub who goes to sleep in, a, in some kind of experimental sleep pod, and he wakes up in the far-flung future, which it turns out is a enormous cartoon of the 1970s. And in this way, it sort of harkens back to one of the first science fiction films that we very much said was not essential, Just Imagine from 1930, in which beloved vaudeville comedian L. Brendel wakes up in the far-flung future of 1980. And Just Imagine and Sleeper are so similar that I wonder if maybe Woody Allen saw that, said, well, 
anyone could be funnier than this. And I'm 70s Woody Allen. I'm actually super funny. So I'm going to do it. And again, as a, you know, the job of science fiction in many cases is to show, hold up a funhouse mirror to the present. And absolutely, that's what Sleeper does. Lots of now, I think, dated comedy, but also sort of the essential man out of place, man out of time humor that uh, I think Alan at his best was always good at doing. And maybe when he started having the the money and the attention to recreate those times that he was out of too perfectly, it stopped being as funny. But in 73, Sleeper is still pretty hilarious. And I think as far as, you know, funhouse mirrors of the present, it's still a an almost unsurpassed film in the science fiction stable. And follows on the theme that we've visited before and are going to keep visiting of love triumphing over dystopia. Mm -hmm. Because in Hollywood films, it's love that triumphs over things. It's also his tribute to silent comedy. And uh, so it's in its way, it's, it's his most overtly goofy movie. And definitely uh, later in its film, Stardust Memories, the Woody Allen character is told by someone, I liked your earlier funny films. Well, this mm -hmm. is one of the earlier funny films that they were referring to. And of course, as you've alluded to, uh, people today will have to decide uh, how they feel about Woody Allen uh, before delving into his filmography. Next, we come to one that I think is unfairly mocked, but is actually, I'm going to say, is a full-on essential, and that is Zardoz by John Borman from 1974. And this is another far future post-apocalyptic dystopia where there's two classes of people. There's the uh, Brutals, of whom Sean Connery wearing a bandolier and a mankini and a ponytail is one of the foremost exponents. He's one of the enforcers who keeps this whole system in line. And then there are the, uh, the Eternals, the immortal beings who uh, do not age unless something goes terribly wrong or they are punished by their dystopic intelligence. And this is, first of all, a hallucinatory gloss on The Wizard of Oz. The image of the flying Stonehead's spaceship, I think, is an immortal fusion of not just science and mysticism, but science and lysergic mysticism, which we've encountered before. And this is also something that is going to show us suddenly the most influential film of science fiction is no longer Woman of the Moon, but for this period, it's Fahrenheit 451. It's the film that, as we mentioned when we talked about it, was received a mixed reception. And all of a sudden, we've got a bunch of movies that replicate uh, the formula established first by Bradbury's novel and replicated in Truffaut's film, which is there's an enforcer of the system, a soldier of the corrupt order who eventually winds up turning against it and rebelling against it. And which, which in many ways is just sort of an, uh, a slightly more action-y reading of 1984, because Winston Smith is a, uh, he's not a soldier, but he's certainly a, an enforcer of newspeak and an enforcer of Big Brother's will who rebels against the system to an extent. Again, 1984 is a, is a different thing than Zardoz in many ways, but you can sort of, you can sort of see someone say, well, I like 1984, but what if Winston Smith had a gun? And then everyone's eyes open up big. And that's where you begin to get, you know, from 84 through Fahrenheit 451. And then I think Zardoz is one of the first really big tear it all down sort of uh, dystopias. And again, I'm going to echo you in terms of the impact of the movie. If you watch it on the big screen, ideally with a bunch of other people, it will hit very hard and very close to how John Borman meant it to hit. Uh, as you say, the iconography is timeless now from Sean Connery's Speedo all the way up. But it is also, 
I would put it in the category of ambitious, maybe not failure, but ambitious near miss. I don't know that I would say that it is an essential film, except maybe in the John Borman over, but I would say that it's absolutely a core part of what science fiction's DNA became. And I guess in that sense, I agree with you that it is an essential film, but I, I, I don't, I don't think that if you look at that movie and come out shaking your head that you're necessarily wrong to do that. I think shaking your head is part of it. Right. I think often, you know, some of the most interesting films are ones that leave you going, what did I just, what? What? And, and well, I've never said it's not interesting. Yes. It's, it's triumph of theme over logic, I think is, is part of the appeal. Yep. Now we're going to finally get to, we need to have a drive-in movie in our essentials list. And as opposed to all the monster movies we had in the 50s, which were also drive-in movies. movies. Uh, right. But particularly a film that Roger Gorman produced, but was directed by Paul Bartel, Death Race 2000. So on one level, uh, this film, which is about a cyborg driver on a cross-country race uh, named Frankenstein, uh, played by David Carradine, and he's in, well, guess what, a death race. Yep. So all of the uh, cars are roaring across America in a post-collapse landscape. It's a cynical sports movie as well as a science fiction movie. They are gain points for hitting pedestrians along the way. And Bartel's cult satirical vision, I think, is what elevates this past the standard Roger Corman car movie. But it's definitely a Roger Corman car movie. And I think is very influential in the way that it brings satire back into what has been, you know, a sleeper aside, a somewhat po-faced string of dystopian films and uh this one is sort of a gleefully nihilistic and benefits from the fact that bartel uh, who would later go on to direct the cult classic Ine raul cares nothing for cars <laughs> and so he makes sure that there's something way more interesting going on than a typical roger corman car movie yeah it's um again this is a movie that i think i may like it a little less than you do but i certainly don't not like it it does what roger corman does it you know hits all of its marks it it makes your pulse go up it's got a, a verve to it that that a corman production does if uh he's found the right director i i think everything you said is correct again i might not have said death race 2000 is an essential especially because we have Rollerball, Norman Jewison, 1975, same year, which is an actual essential, is an actual masterpiece, and does 95% of what Death Race 2000 does in terms of satire, but it's also a vastly better movie. It's starring James Caan, of course, as the player of the sport Rollerball that has become the method by which corporations battle things out to avoid, you know, roiling the stock market, basically. And so it's not just a sports movie, but it's a corrupt fixer sports movie. It's got a lot of that of that boxing movie energy that was also a big thing in the 70s. It's a, another anti-hedonism movie. So it's, it, you know, indicting the sort of corporate elites. Right. And, and Khan is a soldier of the corrupt order who rebels, discovering the Ahai yep. uh, behind the system. E exactly. Very similar, as as you say, to Zardoz, or to a lesser extent, to Fahrenheit 51 or 1984. And it's also really great action. I mean, I don't know to what extent Norman Jewison was a hockey fan, but Rollerball is a viscerally understandable sport. He's the son sport. of the Silver Birch. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a viscerally exciting sport, and it's well-filmed. So, I would say... What if Paul Bartel had liked cars that you get rollerball and rollerball is again, you, as you're watching it, you keep thinking, 
Oh, everyone was, this, this was 1975. Everything that some snarky guy at um, uh, OutKick has said was already being said meaner and better in 1975 by, probably by James Caan uh, in Rollerball. And it's, uh, it's a terrific movie. It's an essential, I would say, not just of science fiction. I would say it's an essential sports film and maybe an essential 70s film. It's, it's a really, really top-notch movie and just a pulse pounder as well. Right. In addition to being... Uh, built around the Fahrenheit 451 template. It's also uh, heavily influenced by Slapshot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Now, you're going to mention a an influential uh, film that we both agree is a non-essential, and that's uh, Brian Forbes' The Stepford Wives, also from 75. Yeah, The Stepford Wives is, in a way, it's sort of Westworld, but the specific critique is a feminist critique, and it is, what if uh, you can build pleasure bots, and then rather than put them in a, a theme park, you can just replace your boring regular wife with these. So it's got a, a bit right. of and the status bots as well. That exactly. Their status is that they're obedient. Right. It's a, it's a bit of a, um, well, that's part of the pleasure. I assume it's a bit of an invasion of the body snatchers because it is told sort of from the perspective of uh, Catherine Ross, who is the, one of the wives, but has not yet been replaced, but notices that all of her friends begin to act weird. So it's got that energy to it. It's meant to be sort of, over the top in a way as well. So there's a sort of a black comedy to it, but I think fundamentally Forbes maybe isn't quite capable of hitting the tension that he needs to the film. He feels a little slack in that seventies way and talk about jokes that don't translate anymore. I feel like a lot of the jokes, even those at the expense of the sexist pig husbands would, would land with a thud in a modern viewing audience. And it's just, it's not a terrific movie, despite coming from a great Ira Levin novel. Ira Levin, of course, the guy who wrote Rosemary's Baby, the novel. So it, it's got a great pedigree, but Forbes, I think, you know, maybe hits a, a double instead of a home run with it, which is just the way the world is. But it is a movie that people reference and it comes back and sort of feeds into the DNA of this paranoid slash, you know, anti. Yeah, more influential almost as a metaphor. Right. Or a, a, than as an actual a film. Saying than as film. Next, we come to Logan's Run by Michael Anderson from 1976. When I saw this as a kid who had then seen Star Wars and was looking for other science fiction, it annoyed me because, of course, the entire theme of the film went over my head and the jankiness of the supposedly scary robot was nonsense to me. But looking back on it, I'm going to say Logan's Run is an essential in part for continuing the theme, because, Ken, we've got a film in which a soldier of the corrupt order rebels, discovering the AI behind it. What What do you know, right? Yeah. And uh, Michael York plays uh, the lead, and uh, Jenny Ankiter is uh, the woman for whom he triumphs over dystopia, or at least tries to escape from dystopia. The hook here is that in this, once again, anti-hedonism movie is that you have a apparently perfect society where everybody gets all of the uh, sensuality and love and pleasure that they want until they get too old. And then the little thing in their palm flashes and uh, people, uh, they have to turn themselves in to be killed. And those who do not turn themselves in are uh, hunted. And I think it is definitely on one level, uh, sort of an avatar of high seventies kitsch, but that's part of the point. Yeah. And in addition to the, you know, sort of high seventies nature of it, it, it's a cheap looking movie. The world looks like a mall that everyone lives in before they have to, you know, go to carousel and go away. And I think that's part of the point, but it also doesn't make the movie any easier to watch. Like you, I watched it avidly. My reason was it had Farrah Fawcett in it and 
Uh, I was disappointed not at the janky robot, but at the small amount of Farrah Fawcett that was on screen. I objected to that, I remember. It also has a fairly uh, labored message to the extent, and I think it hits different post-carousel than it did pre-carousel. At some point, I very much remember that I was sort of rooting for Michael York to just get killed and let us get back to the fun mall where Farrah Fawcett might show up again. Who can say? Uh, it was a different time and a different vibe, but it's a, I think it's in that Stefford Wives box where it is very influential downstream of it. As a, as a viewing experience, I don't necessarily know that it is something I would go back to even in my, you know, post carousel era. But it is, you know, a, a strong story. And again, it comes from a William F. Nolan novel. So it continues the film tradition of adapting a pretty good novel into a half-decent film, in my opinion. I think finally for this segment, we're going to get to one that I think is doesn't require any uh, excuses for its era and is a genuinely masterfully made uh, film. And that's The Man Who Fell to Earth, directed by Nicholas Rogue from 1976. So the cinematographer of Fahrenheit 451 has now been directing films for a while, and this is his science fiction entry. But unlike those, this is not about a dystopia. It's not about a uh, rebellious figure per se. It's about an outsider. Uh, And David Bowie, at his peak Bowie period, is the alien who comes to Earth and Uh, He's the sympathetic outsider, in particular because of his affect, is one of uh, gender nonconformity. He's with a woman romantically in the film, but the uh, visuals very clearly play on his uh, sexual ambiguity. And he is the, uh, the alien Christ figure who is attacked and studied by scientists and uh, who uh, cannot live in this imperfect world. And so, so it's as if the, the Michael Rennie figure from the day the earth stood still is the one who, uh, you know, he goes off and is, is trapped and has some emotional experiences on earth that go beyond the ones in the, uh, the film. And so it sort of continues that along into, as I said, a martyrdom metaphor. Yeah. It's a um, fairly straightforward Christ story in that way, but that's not necessarily a knock on it. David Bowie is amazing as the alien figure. It's probably the, the best uh, one of those sorts of performances in history. Nicholas Rogue is, as you say, you know, at the top of his powers, he just made don't look now, which is another masterpiece that we talked about in the horror essentials. And it's just an absorbing movie because I think Rogue at some level is looking back at Kubrick's religious film, 2001, and very much imbibed the fact that that was a, a movie that, was purely visual. It, it, it was not a verbal film. It sort of transcended its script in many ways. I think he was doing that same thing with Man Who Fell to Earth, that it's about the powerful impression left by the image and the incident without so much trying to, you know, draw out a, you know, a compelling, you know, what if the robot attacks narrative and it becomes almost an impressionistic series of stations of the cross. And then on that level, again, I think it works really, really well. It's a little slow, I think, for modern audiences, if I'm going to put any kind of asterisk on it at all. But it's absolutely, you know, a vital piece of of cinema, as are most rogue films. And it's a bang up science fiction essential. It's one of one of those that I think I don't want to say transcends genre, but takes the deepest, most thoughtful and interesting parts of the genre and tries to film it as opposed to saying um, just add a spaceship. Right. right. And as such is the perfect place to stop because really next week, I promise, because <laughs> it's the next one on the list, we will finally get to the science fiction film that changed not only science fiction cinema, but the movie business. 
The best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from veering into the darkest timeline by joining such backers as... Brian K. Eason. Chris McLaren. Adam Grokejohn. Lee Candelino and Luke Steyer. The ching of the cash register, the bouncing of loose change on the table, and the uh, click of the Excel spreadsheet welcome us once more into that most sober and perhaps Spartan of huts, the business of gaming. And today, Robin, you want to talk about, and I guess I want to talk about too, the notion of promoting your game, especially if you are not Hasbro or uh, a company with a marketing budget, and the extra difficulty of doing so in the age where social media is ever less of both. (laughs) Right. So as we speak, the clear collapse of Twitter has not fully occurred, but it's been compared to a loser mall. And uh, definitely we've reached the raccoons and the drop ceiling above the Zabaro stage of Twitter's loser mall status. And I think that has definitely affected people's ability to kind of break through out of nowhere and, for example, promote a big Kickstarter. And this is something that has slowly been happening over time. It's been observed that platforms on the Internet tend to have a shelf life. And uh, if you make it past a decade, you're going to creak and fall apart and and fail. And uh, there are special reasons why Twitter is going downhill fast, which is that it's been purchased by an idiosyncratic nutball billionaire. But this is also something that has been happening for a while in that both Facebook and Twitter, about five years ago or so, maybe a little more than that, decided to downgrade external links. Yeah. And so... I think Facebook a little bit before Twitter, I think yeah. the the old regime of Twitter followed Facebook in doing it. Right. And part of the point, of course, is that, like, I don't want to create the impression that I think any platform owes us free advertising, but those of us who need to have cheap word-of-mouth advertising need to know how things are changing in order to adapt and figure out what's going on. And... In both cases, at the very beginning of this podcast, when I uh, did the Hillfolk Kickstarter with Pelgrain, it was much easier to have something that would achieve a good virality, that it would spread and be shared uh, just by being on these networks and letting people know about them and posting and posting and posting. Mm-hmm. In part, this is, is sort of addressed by the fact that people in the nerd community do, I think, curate their use of these platforms to a greater extent so that they're more likely to see the things that they've put on a list, either on Facebook or on Twitter, than just the average person is to, you know, get something reflected to them just sort of out of nowhere because the algorithm on either site is is doing that. But still, there is an effect 
to that. And it's really, I think, hit Twitter particularly hard is that it used to be that Twitter, which doesn't account for nearly as much internet traffic or traffic out to links as you would think. And, and never did. And never did. Hit harder in the gaming space. So where it used to have like a 9%, you know, be 9% of the traffic on the internet, often and in an earlier era on Kickstarter, you get like 25% of your action from Twitter. So it is sad to see that go away. And that raises the question of, you know, what is going to replace it? And I guess that's what the rest of our segment is going to be about. And to an extent, as you say, our audience, our uh, beloved gamer audience, tend to overlap with the kinds of people who aggressively use Facebook groups and uh, aggressively listify their Twitter. So I assume that Many people on Twitter do what I do, which is I have my list of 20 best beloved accounts that I read every day. And then sometimes I'll go on the main feed and sometimes I won't. And if I am fortunate enough to be on that person's list, they will see me tweet out a Kickstarter or whatever. And if I'm not, well, too bad, so sad. And the Facebook group is another attempt, I think, by Facebook users to counteract Facebook's bizarre attempt to keep everyone in-house but looking at nothing. And so there, I know that there's a good number of groups for various role playing games. We have a Dracula dossier discussion group that is now a little bit more abundant, but you know, should Pelgrain do another big nice black agents thing? I'm sure it would uh, awaken like some sort of supernatural creature that I can't think of a metaphor for right now. And so to an extent, people are sort of building these, these walled communities, which is good because it means they see maybe a little more than the algorithm would show them. But it's not so good because if you've built your little walled community for Savage Worlds and there's a game coming out that you might really be interested in, but it's not for Savage Worlds or it's not being done by one of the, you know, Preto optimal 20% posters in that group, you may still not hear about it because you have calved yourself off from the pod where the Free League fans are all talking about this great new game and you just didn't hear about it because you were over in this other little ball. People have got limited amounts of time and attention. God knows in the same way that you don't want to say social media owes any of us a living. I'm not going to sit here and say everyone should spend more time on social media. That is literally the opposite of what I believe. Right. Because in <laughs> fact, there's, there's a paradox at play, which right. is that the, when you take away the things that make Twitter in particular, but also Facebook viral, it makes a better experience for people, especially mm -hmm. because the very things that are great for telling people about your Kickstarter are also strong technologies for harassment and pylons and people... And yelling about something you care about much less than a game Kickstarter, whatever that might be. Yes. And <laughs> so, consequently, people, I think, have gone off and, and, as you suggested, built better communities elsewhere. There's also, you know, a ton of discords, which are forums that mysteriously work. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, understand why it's basically a forum... But I guess it's just because it's more exclusive and harder to get onto than, mm -hmm. you know, other forums that are legendarily terrible. And having people coalesce around the more specific interests they have, the less likely it is to be terrible. Or perhaps it is only in its early young phase and those will go on to become terrible. And so the, the question is then is that if everybody has limited attention to give to social media networks... You have to kind of be on there and be yourself and be posting other content, not just promotional content, or people won't follow you. Although people are often too shy about posting their promotional content when that's actually why people are following you. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, I think there are other means that are sort of more powerful, like, you know, finding other like-minded 
past successful Kickstarters and making arrangements to send out offers to people's different Kickstarter lists. But I think it's a real challenge right now to know. With Twitter, it's sort of the the solution to Twitter, the new version of Twitter that's like the old Twitter we liked whenever period we liked it, <laughs> is always in beta. It's yeah. always the next new thing, right? This week, it's like maybe Substack Notes. But, you know, it's not being built to be another new Twitter. And, you know, even even another thing that was very much like that, that wasn't run by Elon Musk, how do you get everybody over to move onto it? Our people, the role-playing people, have, I think, substantially moved over to Mastodon, which is very much like Twitter, without the virality, which was identified as the terrible thing that makes people crazy, which is correct. Yeah. However, again, it's also the thing where you can let people who don't yet know about your thing you're promoting, who might be interested in it, know about it. And, and because it's designed to not do that, it's not a great alternative either. Now, I would say then this is a case of do as I say, not as I do. But I would say if you are a, a designer coming up a uh, generation below Robin and myself, or even of our generation, because as I say, I don't do it yet, you should be building a personal email list. And the mailing list opt-in, obviously, don't just spam your people who went to high school with you. But as you make any connection on any social media, your goal should be to get them to sign up for your mailing list. And again, Substack is, I guess, the king of mailing lists, but there's MailChimp and there's all kind of other mailing list technologies. I think even Google has one that's probably as weird and off-putting as Google stuff usually is. But there's tons of these out there. And your goal, since... The, the era of actually social media to the extent it ever was a thing is less of a thing evermore. Your goal should always be to identify people who want to come and hear from you and then let them in a useful and ideally not spammy way know when you have a new thing coming or a Kickstarter or whatever and make sure that you curate that mailing list and give the people who signed up a reason to read you, you know, write a clever little email. Beloved friend of the show, Will Hindmarch, has a great mailing list, for example. And it provides you with that connection to your audience that, first of all, is the whole reason you're in a creative field instead of making real money, but also is the way that you begin that process of marketing. And I'm not necessarily saying everyone on your mailing list will immediately tweet out, oh, this great new Kickstarter, because that never happens. But it's it's a better chance they'll see an email to them than they will a tweet that they don't have on a list, right? Right. Because I think now the thing is, is that you do more explicitly need to indicate to people who are interested in your thing that they are doing you a huge solid and perhaps creating a large enough pool of people who are interested in this that they can find players who mm -hmm. want to play it or a yep. GM who Ideally. run for them. We have to rely more on getting people to boost things that they otherwise might, you know, click on, even sign up for, uh, that we need to do more to enlist people to sort of take the role of what the algorithms used to do and don't do anymore. Yeah, which is a, which is a rotten thing to have to ask. But on the other hand, there isn't a, another way to do it. And right. I guess you and I at least are old enough to remember when we didn't even have email to do it with. We right. had to stand on a corner with a, a sandwich board and yell. Right. Well, well, that's why I'm gently laterally doing it yeah. <laughs> here in this <laughs> podcast segment. And so the, the final question, I guess, is going to be, you know, how long are we going to continue to sign off this podcast with our Twitter handles? And what are we going to sign on to the handles for? I think that Mastodon kind of took off for 
a while and has quieted down a bit, and uh, it's not uh, not clear what the the next thing is. But I guess you'll know that you know the Sabaro is entirely raccoons uh, when Ken, you and I find a new thing to direct people to. Right to our to our exciting Discord or whatever to, to our mailing list. Right. The the notion of of when do we know when we're done? I guess the the Mastodon numbers, as you say, they they climbed up and now they're dropping off. So. The ground is littered with better ideas than the present, and for whatever reason, they didn't catch on. And this is not just a social media observation, kids. But the question of how to get your game out, I think, at some level, does depend on a human connection. And that human connection can be a mailing list. That human connection can be being uh, vibrant and exciting and interesting and drawing to you other vibrant, exciting, interesting influencers and, and, and friends who are creative the old sort of, you know, creative salon or, or artistic movement model. And finally, of course, going to conventions and playing your game and uh, being a social and good human being is still an excellent way, I think, to, to get uh, some degree of outreach that you wouldn't get in any other way. So the way to fix social media is to stop depending on social media, uh, much the same way as to fix heroin addiction, I guess. Right. And also easy for us to say since we were, as we were at a bunch of times in the right place at the right time, I yep. to take advantage of that opportunity when it existed. Well, that that's a dystopian note, yep. which I guess fits our previous segment. If only we had a soldier to rebel against it, Robin. Yeah. I guess it's time for us to now uh, go and do uh, something that can't possibly lead to a dark timeline. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that our chrono hero uses to go back into time on behest of Time Incorporated in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, estimable backer Neil Barnes asks, can Time Incorporated consider engaging Ken to ensure that the world adopts a nice standard base 12 number system so that we can divide by three and four more easily? And as if this wasn't difficult enough, bonus points if he can do it without going back to the Permian to give our poor pentadactyl ancestors alcohol poisoning. 
And uh, there's another follow-up question. Man, I wanted to poison salamanders. <laughs> well, you have to go back before, right? You'd have to go back before the development of five-fingered creatures. Yeah, right. You'd, you'd have to be, you know, um, getting on eels or something. Yeah, you have to mess with some, you know, jawless fish right. somehow. So It's really more a Jonathan Tweets time machine question, I feel, right. at that point. And so not, not every proposal does Time Incorporated uh, entertain, and I guess the demand for a base 12 system comes mostly from mathematicians. There's a famous book in 1935 that proposed that this would be much easier. But if it's specialized mathematicians telling you that math is much easier, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be the uh, conservative stick in the mud on this one and say that 10 fingers good. And yes, you can use your three parts of your four fingers to count to 12. But I don't feel like I have the kind of problems dealing with fractions or hours being different. So, Ken, what is the reason, the attraction, in fact? What would the benefit be of this hypothetical? Let's forget how you do it. What what does it look like? How is the, the timeline where people have adopted a base 12 number system? Well, I, I want to briefly address how I do it, because I did put a little bit of thought into this once I was told I couldn't poison salamanders. You get to pick the order you go in. Right. So, my theory is that the big development, the bomb that drops that makes decimal notation the best is the existence of zero. And that is come up with by uh, Indian uh, mathematicians somewhere around the first century AD, give or take. And it spreads, I don't want to say like wildfire, because there's a great deal of, of theological back talk about how can zero be a thing? And, uh, and that was apparently a very important question. It's why the Greeks didn't have a zero. They had a little dot that almost meant zero, but even Archimedes couldn't make it stick. People were complaining about the kids today and their zero culture. And their zero culture. Uh, the, the, the Hellenistic mathematicians, Euclid and those guys, almost got to zero, and they kept running into the philosophical question of how do you have a thing that means nothing? And this is where my, my man Aristotle sadly has a little bit to answer for, because I feel like he is the, is the, 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 the school marm looming over people trying to write zero in, in the Greek era. But, if you hop skip over the Greeks to the previous great mathematical culture, the Babylonians, they have a base 60 system. And that's why we have 60 seconds in a, in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. They love 12s. That's why we've got 12 signs of the Zodiac, 12 hours in the day. Lots of good stuff going on with the Babylonians. Their sexagesimal system was actually sort of a base 10 system at base. If you look at how they enumerated things, they did not, of course, have zeros. So when they marked things down, it was in tens as well as in sixties. So it was sort of a three place system, ones, tens and sixties, not ones, tens and hundreds. But I feel like Babylonian mathematics is really catching fire around 1800 BC. We have surprisingly advanced brute force quadratic equations coming off of Babylonian tablets from that era. They basically solve the Pythagorean theorem. They figure it out, again, not much later than 1800 BC. The, it's harder to date things that don't have dates on them. If they're just a clay-fired tablet, they have to go by the style of the cuneiform it's used in. But the cuneiform style of these math tablets indicates an old Babylonian mathematical culture that is really gigantic. And there's lots of... um Tables of of, uh, of of squares, they came up with those and figured those out, and that's, that's how they did long division without place notation, which is amazing to me. So, go back, just get Hammurabi drunk, so much easier, and you have a zero. And uh, you say, well, zero is the abzu, it's the, it's the chaos, 
that is at the bottom of everything, at the bottom of the big temple, the Ezekiela, there's still that Abzu pool. That's what our zero is. And so you put a zero in. And so you can have your one through 12 digits and then 12 is the 12 digit and the zero and you're good. And suddenly base 12 numeration takes off and it becomes because Babylonian mathematics influenced not just Greek mathematics, but also the Hindu mathematics that came up with zero on their own. You wind up with, I think, a very good chance that the base 12 counting system takes off. Now, every other independent counting system except the Mayans is a base 10 system, which implies, as you say, people would rather count on their fingers than on the um, phalanges of their forefingers, not counting the thumb. But as, as the QWERTY keyboard has taught us, once you have the hardware, software will follow. Right. There's some Nigerian languages that use a base 12 system and the Chipang language of Nepal. Uses mm-hmm. it, but, but that is, that is less than all, I would yes. say. <laughs> that is more than, more than none. But still, if the Babylonians, who, as they say, already love 12s and are uh, properly respectful to 60, if the Babylonians come up with a base 12 notation system, hexadecimal notation, as they say, then we will have a, you know, not only will Traveler become much easier to play, but also you have a really good chance of, at the very least, it survives as a follow-on mathematical language. And again, given that the Babylonian math, a lot of it is the Babylonian commercial math, that one of the reasons you learned math was to be able to engage in trade, that there's a probably a very strong case that there's a mercantile and educated number system in the same way that the mercantile and educated language was Latin, even if your local language was, you know, uh, French or Spanish or or whatever, and you wind up with the base 12 being a sort of super straight, even if the sort of common linguistic language was the one to 10 that, that we all enjoyed. And without a, and with zeros being in base 12, one to 10 doesn't take off because you can't use a zero for your base 10 zeros, except maybe in 1935, some mathematician writes a book about why don't we do everything in base 10? It would be simpler. I'll bet the French Revolution would have done it, though. Those metric weirdos, they would have tried to abolish the hexadecimal zero. So maybe you have a world in which America is the only country with hexadecimal notation and everyone else followed the the horrible French Revolution's metric numbers. Right. Due to the well-known influence of the Babylonians on the founding fathers. Okay. So that was the how. That was the how. So let's get back to the why. Why? What is the benefit in this other timeline? How does this help? How does this help? Well, I think the only thing that it actually helps with is that it does make basic computational math easier in the same way that the Dvorak keyboard is supposed to make typing easier, even though to the extent you can do a controlled test, that may not be the case. But you can certainly believe in a case where it's easier to do division just by and large to physically compute it makes math easier to grasp. So to the extent you have a society where more people can do better math, arguably you might have uh, on the margins and accelerating after the Industrial Revolution, you might have a situation in which you have a larger amount of scientific discovery and a larger amount of industrial applications of scientific discovery because engineering, uh, the math is almost more important there than it is in the science half. So you could either argue you just have a sort of a steampunky, super scientific 19th century, or you could argue that that Babylonian zero is the important thing that gives the otherwise Aristotelian Hellenistic era the opportunity to 
create its own industrial takeoff or its own scientific takeoff that you might get a, a germ theory of medicine or other uh, scientific breakthroughs if you've broken through that Aristotelian framework by going around it and starting with a zero before him. Right. So the dirigible, which is, as we've established, is the visual sign of an alternate timeline. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they rely on base 12 math. Right. That's one of the ways that you can tell is when you go into the control room of the dirigible, all of the um, uh, numbers are normal right up until you get to 10 and 11, which are weird glyphs that you don't recognize and are sort of post-cuneiform squiggles in some exciting way. Now, Neil goes on to ask, what would the uh, repercussions be for the RPG industry, aside from authors of per-grossile tables having to come up with more entries? And so the, the first answer to that is, instead of having a dice bag that is mostly D10s and D20s, and you've got a few D12s, you'll have mostly D12s and a few D10s and D20s. Mm-hmm. And I think that will mean that it'll be much harder to do a very granular resolution system because the percentile system or even the D20, which is, you know, percentile divided by five is going to be less intuitive than a a D12 roll or the heavy use of fractions. So the, everything would be, well, you have a quarter percent chance of this, a half percent chance of this, a third percent chance of this. And so I think that makes everything uh, much more kind of gumptuary. Perversely, they kind of become your D12s become D6s. Right. That the, that the, the commonality of, I think D12s and D6s being rolled in pairs is going to be a strong thing. You're going to get that dice step technology a la Savage Worlds maybe earlier than we got it in, in our timeline. Yeah. D&D off of a D12 is going to definitely be a thing. I wonder, I mean, the D12 is just one of the platonic solids. And one assumes that a primordial Gary Gygax, when he's coming up with chainmail, is going to be, you know, trying to use the platonic dice in the same way that he did, and maybe is going to do 2d12 that will begin, rather than starting with the wildly swingy linear curve, that will start out with a a, a sensible bell curve. Right, except bell curves are very counterintuitive, so mm-hmm. it's hard for people to figure out probabilities. So, uh, but I it's easier because they can divide things easier. Right, I suppose. But again, you're just dividing them into the four intuitive fractions, right? Mm-hmm. Where one is a fraction. So mm-hmm. it's a quarter, a third, three quarters, a whole, and that's uh, sort of it. So and two-thirds. Again, I don't know if I'm a, a stick in the mud here or, or whatever, but... Uh, I'm I'm glad I'm still working on base 10 for my uh, rules designs. Yeah, I mean, you, you do wonder if Mark Miller, in order to make things seem weird and futury, would have had to make a base 16 system for a traveler and made it even more imp- impenetrable than it normally was in our timeline, or if he would have done the, the weird French uh, revolutionary thing that failed like the French calendar did and has a percentile system in Traveler and everyone gets weird dice and is ooing and aahing over how relatively clean it, it feels compared to the progrossile system used by the great Steve Perrin in RuneQuest, right? Well, I guess this podcast is a thing that does work on base 12 because it has four segments. Mm-hmm. It's me, Fractions. We've done all four segments. We're now uh, fully done. We've got a whole or 100%, as I like to say, as a base 10 person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll be back with more content that can be divisible by 4 or by 10 or whatever you like a mere week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep our podcast from being sent to Carousel alongside such anti-dystopian backers as... Yadge from Edinburgh. Drew Eichholz. Daniel Markwig. John W.S. Marvin. And John Bisco. Where the this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.